0: Are you a conspiracy theorist? What comes to mind when you hear the word conspiracy? Maybe that freaks you out. Maybe um, you think of someone in your family, or maybe you've been called a conspiracy theorist. Um, There's a lot of talk, I think in the last few years, I've heard a lot of talk about different conspiracy theories. That label has been thrown around a bunch. And some of them, some of these conspiracy theories are crazy and kooky. Some of them end up being proven true, right? Um, What's called a conspiracy one day might not be a year later. But I've been thinking recently, as I've seen a lot of the rise of different conspiracy theories, quote unquote, I've been thinking about what is it that makes us so drawn to conspiracy theories? I know I'm fascinated by so many of them. And I think what it is for us as people is that we naturally want to understand the world. We want to put together um, all these different random things that happen into some sort of system that makes sense. And so very often we, we want to know there's some intention behind things. There's some sort of grand plan. We look at things that we don't want to accept that things are just random. There has to be some intention behind them. And so as humans, we're made to find patterns and patterns and things. And one of the ways we do that is by conspiracy theories. Now, w- today we're going to look at one of the, the most famous passages in the, in the old Testament, one of the most famous Psalms. And really it's all about a conspiracy really a global conspiracy, a conspiracy of world leaders against God and against his people. So that's what we're going to dive into today. It's it's an amazing text. We need to have a good understanding of this. It's going to help us a lot in the New Testament as well, as it's quoted many times. So last week we saw Psalm 1 shows us how to be blessed. Psalm 2 is really just kind of how to be blessed part 2, it's going to round out the teaching of Psalm 1 and show us one of the, the key themes in the Psalms. So Psalm 1 as, and, and 2, we said last week, they together provide an introduction to the Psalter or to the book of Psalms. And so there's lots of connections and uh, similar words and themes in these two Psalms, even though they're very different in a sense. Psalm 1, we saw, focuses on the Torah, on the Word of God or the law of God. And this is a crucial foundation for the Psalms. We we mentioned the other two Torah Psalms are Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. So these three Psalms will be very, very important in how the book of Psalms is laid out. But Psalms two has a, or Psalm two has a different focus. It's not focused on the Torah. Primarily it's focused instead on the Messiah, the chosen King. So Psalm two reminds us, that the, the foundation of the Psalter is not just the Word of God, it's also equally the kingship, the, the, the kingdom of David, the covenant with David, and the kingship of Israel, and especially how that is a picture of the ultimate reign of God himself. So many Psalms we'll see bear the name of David and should be read in light of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. If you're not familiar with that, go back and watch our episode on those chapters in 2 Samuel. It'll be very helpful for you. But we often hear some of these Psalms referred to as Messianic Psalms, so Psalms that directly prophesy about Jesus. Now, this would be one of them that's often referred to as a Messianic Psalm. But there's a sense in which if the Psalms are heavily shaped by King David, then in a sense, all of the Psalms are Messianic. There's a, there's a Messianic uh, foundation to everything in the Psalms, and they all in some way point to Jesus. So, you know, in the... Also, like I said, Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 are probably, well, they're maybe not not one psalm, but they're connected heavily. And we see evidence of this in uh, Rabbi Johanan in the Babylonian Talmud. And he says this, he says, every chapter that was particularly dear to David, he commenced with happy and terminated with happy. He began with happy as it is written, happy is the man, that's Psalm 1. One, one. And he terminated with happy as it is written, happy are they that take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2, 12. So there seems to be, at least from this quote, that certain people thought that these two were actually one psalm. So we'll see a little bit more of that. Like I said last week, we'll look at the connections between these psalms. And also in some manuscripts of Acts 13, when it references the second psalm, some of those manuscripts actually say the first psalm. So that's sort of the foundation for thinking that these two could be one, or at the very least, there's great connection between these two. So we're going to look at this Messianic psalm. It's a very dramatic psalm as well. I want you to notice that as we're going through this. There's four different voices, so to, so to speak, in this text. And so there's a lot of dynamics and, and drama in this text. We also know that the the writer of this Psalm is David. We see this in the New Testament quotation of this passage in Acts 4, 25. So David is the writer, even though he's not explicitly named. So the purpose of this Psalm is to demonstrate this global conspiracy, to show how there is this unified hatred of men and especially world leaders against God's Messiah. That's one purpose, but it's also to foretell the victory of Christ over that conspiracy. God's not afraid of this conspiracy. He's going to crush it. He's going to win. And the third purpose is to exhort men to submit to his rule. So if this is true, if there is um, a conspiracy that will fail and God will be victorious, then this should show us the path to true blessedness, right? Is following God, submitting to the Messiah. So, and like it's been mentioned already, just as the first psalm starts with blessed, this psalm will end with blessed. So both of them together show us the path to, Of blessing, So let's jump into the text of the psalm. I think it'll be very encouraging for you. So verses one through three, we see the conspiracy, the conspiracy. It starts off this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us so verses 1 and 2 we see there's a plotting and raging of human leaders against God and against his anointed so this is important because the Davidic King according to the Davidic Covenant was supposed to rule and reign over the world the Davidic King was a, a mediator to bring God's reign into the world so this goes back to the Garden of Eden when God first put a man in charge as King over his creation and the Davidic king is supposed to be coming back to that, restoring that and showing what God's reign on earth looks like. They were supposed to mediate God's rule on the earth. So many see this psalm as a coronation psalm. So at the crowning of the king, this would be, be read. The picture is of the king ascending to his throne, but there are people, even as he's ascending, who are plotting against him to take him down. And what we see is that through their plotting against the king, they're plotting against God himself. The king and God are closely aligned. So this reminds us that people have always been opposed to God. There's nothing new about that. There's always been people who want to stop God's purposes. And, of course, we see that in our own day in certain ways, but it was true back in David's day as well. The, the phrase in verse 1 of plotting in vain um, is the word murmuring or meditating. It's the same word used in Psalm one verse two, but there it was used of meditating on God's word. So the wise man is the one who meditates on God's word. The fool here in, in Psalm two is the one who plots against God, who meditates on how they can destroy God and undo his plans. That's a foolish way to live. And then we see in, in verse two, the rulers take counsel together, that word counsel is the same word as Psalm 1-1. So one more connection that we can see here. So we're starting to see some of these connections between the two Psalms, which are obviously intentional. God wants us to, to have both of these themes and see how they relate to each other in terms of being blessed. So they, they do this, though, against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's Yahweh, the Lord, and there's a second figure, the anointed, That word is the word Mashiach or the word Messiah in Hebrew. And that refers to an anointed one, a chosen one. Um, That's a very important theme in scripture. And so we see that this is a messianic psalm. It's pointing to David as the Messiah, but really to the ultimate Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we see that the, the kings begin to speak. They want to break apart God's bonds or his cords. Um, this is probably a reference to the Torah. They're probably referring to God's law and saying that they don't want to be bound by God's law or have to live in conformity to it. So we see here again, sinners hate the authority of God. False religion often wants blessing from God without the rule of God. And so they're upset. They're upset that God has some control over them. that He's given them laws to guide them. And it's amazing. People will find any way to avoid God. And so they'll, they'll reject God's word. So we see that God's word is sort of dividing humanity. It's showing those who rebel against him and those who love him and delight in him. And so there's a connection here again between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In Psalm 1, we see that these, these rules or laws from God are a way to guide us into blessing and into righteousness. And here, people are rejecting that and they're going to face the consequences for it. Even that, you know, we see before this in Scripture a connection between God's law and God's kings. Um, In Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 through 20, there's a command given that when a king comes to the throne, he has to write out a copy of the law for himself. So he writes it out, and then he reads that word every single day. He meditates on it. He soaks himself in it in order to be conformed to it. So kingship and Torah were always meant to be intimately connected. And and people, in the same way, hate the king because he's associated with God's word and associated with God himself. So this is why this rebellion is happening. So we see the conspiracy in verses 1 through 3, and then we see the Lord's response in verses 4 to 6. So first the conspiracy, then the Lord's response. So how does God respond to this conspiracy? Is he nervous? Is he insecure? No. No. God responds by laughing. God laughs. Verse four: He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There are only three times in the Bible where God is said to laugh. That might be surprising for you. Only three times, but the, the three times are right here in Psalm thirty-seven thirteen and in Psalm fifty-nine eight. And you can look them up, you can read them in context, but all of them have the same basic context, which is that people are opposing God and opposing his, his king and opposing his people and thinking that they can stop the plan of God. And God laughs at them. This is a, this is a thing worth mocking, that someone would think that they can stop God's purposes. So there's, there's sort of truth in the old saying, when man plans, God laughs. Except maybe you can modify it and say, when man plots, God laughs. When man plots and thinks that he can over overrule what God has said, this is a ridiculous thing. This is something worthy of being mocked. So God laughs. He holds them in derision. This is the word scoff from Psalm 1.1. So just as there's an evil way to scoff, mocking God. Here, God is mocking them. He's mocking the wicked. He's scoffing at them. And so God is not intimidated by these conspiracies. He's not. Verse 5 and 6, he says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God rebukes them, right? Yahweh is speaking here, and he's saying, I've placed my king in Zion. God has established a king, and he's established him in Zion, my holy hill. So Zion, if you're not familiar with that, it's the name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's chosen city where his kings are going to reign, where you know, eventually we see in, at the end of the Bible a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So Jerusalem is incredibly important. So it's often referred to as Zion or Mount Zion. Now for me, whenever I, I hear Mount, when I was a kid I heard mountain, I would think you know what we would call a mountain in California, something massive. But for them, a mount was just any sort of hill. So uh, Zion or Jerusalem is on a hill, but it's not a a very massive hill. But God is saying that the place that he's chosen for his king to rule, he's established his king there. And so he's rebuking them. Then in the next three verses, verses 7 to 9, we see the king's rule. So now the anointed one, this Messiah, is speaking, and he's quoting the Lord. Look at verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's quoting what God says, right? You are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is an amazing phrase, right? This is a phrase that has echoes it echoes back in Scripture, and then, of course, it echoes forward in Scripture. We see amazing connections with this phrase. Now, there are only a few people in the Bible that God calls his son. So one is Adam in Luke chapter 3, in the genealogy of Mary. Um, we, see, we see Adam is the son of God. Israel was referred to as God's son two times, Hosea 11, 1, and Exodus 4, 22. So Israel is the son of God, and then David's son is also called the son of God in 2 Samuel 7. So this, this someone being called the son of God is very significant. It's clearly tied to kingship because of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. But this is, this is a very important phrase. And in Christ's ministry, he as the anointed one, unsurprisingly, this phrase, you are my son, comes up several times. And it should always remind us of Psalm 2 and what's happening here that it's a sign that God is bringing someone who can undo these conspiracies of world leaders. There's three different times where this phrase, you are my son, or something like it, is used at key moments. So one is his baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, we hear the voice from heaven, right, God's voice saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So here God's combining the words of Psalm 2, you are my son, with the, the words of Isaiah 42, 1, where it says, he's the one, my servant's the one in whom I delight. So Jesus is the son of God. He That's affirmed at his baptism. It's affirmed at his transfiguration as well. These, they, these very key pivotal moments in the ministry of Christ, baptism and transfiguration, when he's revealed in his glory to his his three disciples, the voice comes again and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And then the third time we see this is at the resurrection. Now, this is not recorded in the Gospels, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the the resurrection declared Jesus to be the Son of God. So Romans 1, 3, speaking of the Gospel, Paul says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, so a connection there with the Davidic kingship, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the way that he's declared to be the son of God in this power, which again reminds us of Psalm two, the way he achieves that victory over the powers of this world is by being resurrected. So Jesus multiple times is referred to as God's son, fulfilling this passage pointing to what it's all about, which is that there's going to be victory through Jesus Christ. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see that God grants to his son to rule over the whole earth, right? There's judgment coming, and that's depicted by an iron rod meeting with a uh, clay pot, right? Iron rod is is hard. It's not going to break, and a clay pot will shatter. And so God's the picture is there is God's going to destroy the world. He's going to judge those who have been in rebellion against him is the idea. And then we see the, the final stanza here, verses 10 to 12. We see the warning so we've seen you know, th- that there's a conspiracy, how God is going to answer that conspiracy, and now how should we live as a result? What should we do? And it's very straightforward. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here's the, the final word right what should we do in response well we should end the conspiracy maybe we can't stop it globally we can stop it in our own hearts are we living in a way that is in opposition to god well this is not going to work this will not succeed there is not a good end if you're in rebellion against god so what we should do is we should stop trying to oppose god's will and instead submit to the son in verse 11 that the second phrase there rejoice with trembling is an interesting phrase. It's literally, shriek joyously with trembling. (laughs) That's the the literal rendering of it. Shriek joyously with trembling. So it's a very strange phrase. So there's, there's service and fear. There's joy and trembling. And this reminds us that coming before God is a fearful thing, right? He could destroy us. So of course we have fear and we have awe at his power, but we can also rejoice knowing he's a gracious God who receives us. There's joy that you're safe from the judgment to come because you've taken refuge in him. And then in verse 12, he says, kiss the son. This, the idea here is to show respect, to pay homage to the son, to bow the knee, to swear allegiance to him. And it says, if you don't, right? If you don't kiss the sun, if you don't submit to him, you will perish. He will be angry and you will perish. That word perish ties to Psalm 1-6, which, which warns us about rejecting God's law will lead you to perish. Here, rejecting the son leads you to perish because the son and the word are so closely united in purpose. So don't perish, but instead it ends with saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's interesting because it ends with the word blessed, but is this referring to Yahweh? Take refuge in Yahweh or take refuge in the king? Um, it's not entirely clear, but we know from our vantage point in, in the New Testament and beyond, that the two are the same, right? Yahweh and His Son are united; they're they're one. And so, to take refuge in Christ is to take refuge in God Himself, and that's what we need to do. We need to turn to Him, submit to Him, call to Him for forgiveness and for grace. So, a few practical thoughts. Again, Psalm one and two show us that there are only two ways in this life so who are you trying to please are you trying to please the word or, or the world or are you trying to please christ um, are you a part of this conspiracy are you living in ways even if it's only in secret that are in rebellion to god and to his anointed there are only two ways which are you living for we see also in this that all sin is a rebellion against christ all sin is rebellion against christ romans 8 7 says the mind set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So to be in the flesh, to be living for temporary things, is hostility to God. There's no in-between. You can't be neutral. And therefore, all sin is suicidal. If God is the source of life, like we saw in, in chapter one of Psalms, if he's the one who gives to us life and fruitfulness, if he's Um, the one who brings judgment to those who are against him, like we saw in Psalm 2, then sin is suicidal, right? Tim Keller says sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. That's what sin is. Also, we should not be surprised that the world hates God. This reminded me of that, that. We should not be surprised if the world hates God, especially the government, right? Satan loves places of power. We see this throughout the Old and New Testament, that Satan loves to be in places of power, he has um, people that, he's, that are working for him in all these places. And so we shouldn't be surprised when things happen in the world that are against God and against his, his purposes. Also, I think from this we can see that there is comfort um, in spite of the opposition of the world. This psalm is actually employed by the disciples in Acts chapter 4 to praise God and to receive comfort. Let, let me read from Acts chapter 4 just quickly. Because I think this is so, so helpful. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples have just been abused. They've just been punished for preaching Christ. And they come back and they tell the rest of the disciples what what has happened. And this is their response. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said in the Holy Spirit, why why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And so he quotes here from Psalm 2, and he goes on to say in verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they start by saying, God, you're sovereign. They recognize Psalm 2, and they say, oh, yeah, God had said That the nations were going to come against his Messiah to try to defeat him. And look, God, you brought life and forgiveness and resurrection through the death of Jesus. So what all these nations were doing, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, what they were all doing together was only exactly what God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. That's an amazing perspective, right? And it comes from understanding what Psalm 2 is about. So don't be intimidated by conspiracies, real or fake. Don't be intimidated by them. God isn't. And if you know God, you have a refuge in the midst of the trials of this world. And then, I mean, the last thing I would say is it's rare in the Old Testament to be called God's son, but notice as you read the New Testament, how liberal the, the New Testament is with that label for God's people. Every single person who trusts in Jesus is called a son of God. And we can cry to God, Abba, Father. That's an amazing thing, right? That God would give that to us, to all of us, because in Christ's death and resurrection, he gains for us in adoption, right? He forgives us. He gives us his status so we can be united with him and we're adopted into God's family. So there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We're all sons. In fact, even if you're a a woman listening to this, you are called a son of God because in Roman times, a daughter would often be considered a second-class citizen. She couldn't gain an inheritance. But God gives to all of us that status of son, meaning that we have full inheritance, right? All of the blessings that God can give. So that's an amazing thing. So rejoice in that, that you are called a son of the Most High and that you can have confidence for what's to come.